Psalm 23 is better known as the 23rd Psalm and is probably the most popular, rememorized passage in the Bible. Even non-believers have it memorized, but oftentimes it is misunderstood or misapplied and not demonstrated by faith and trust in the Lord. Even Hollywood loves this psalm in their more religious-leaning movies. One author said this about the 23rd Psalm, The 23rd Psalm is the most beloved of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, and possibly the best-loved and best-known chapter in the entire Bible. The great preacher, the great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, called it the Pearl of Psalms. 19th century preacher and commentator J.J. Stuart Perrone observed that there is no psalm in which the absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. Alexander McLaren said that the world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm, as it has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. End of quote. And of course, the Martin Luther, Martin Luther said, this metaphor is one of the most beautiful and comforting and yet most common of all in Scripture when it compares his divine majesty with the pious, faithful, or as Christ says, a good shepherd, and compares us, weak, miserable sinners, with sheep, end of quote. John Phillips said this, as you probably have figured out, I quote, I read and study 90% of the scholars I study are the old dead men. Uh, John Phillips said, This psalm divides into three parts. First, David takes us into the glen, and then he takes us down to the gorge, and finally on into the glory. In the first part of the psalm, he introduces us to one who can take care of our frailty, then to one who can take care of our foes, and finally to one who can take care of our future. But all of the ways we can divide this psalm, I like best the one I found in my mother's open Bible there beside her bed the day after she died. Alongside this psalm, she had written, The secret of a happy life, a happy death, a happy eternity. End of quote. Have you ever looked at one of your loved one's Bibles after they passed away? It's just a joyous thing to see the things that they thought or the questions that they have. It's a beautiful thing to explore the pages of a well-studied Bible after somebody passes away. In the psalm, we also see the triunity of the Godhead again. We, we also see a God who saves, a God who restores, who leads, who protects, who disciplines, and who protects and secures his sheep or his sheeple or his bride of Christ, the church. There are many other points that we're also going to gleam from this great psalm. Of course, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall not lack rest. I shall not lack life. I shall not lack guidance. I shall not lack safety. I shall not lack provision. I shall not lack a heavenly home. And we're also going to talk about wolves, sheep, and sheepdogs. Nonetheless, all throughout this psalm, this goes without saying, that we must trust in the Lord through all of this. We must put the psalm to practice by faith. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you could please just stand briefly for the reading of this chapter. Just six verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please be seated. And now we will begin an exposition of these six verses. First, in verse 1, it says, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. 
If ever a psalm could stand on one single partial line or one single partial verse, this is it. This is the one. The Lord is my shepherd. Church is over. We can now go home. The Lord is my shepherd. But the word is this word, Lord here is the Hebrew word, Yehovah, which is more commonly pronounced Jehovah, which means the existing one. That this is the only God, the God of the scriptures, out of all the false gods in this world. This is the proper name of the one true God, and it is a noun proper deity. A noun proper deity. The word Lord here in English translation of the Old Testament, the word Lord here is the English translation for the Old Testament name of God, which was first disclosed to us by Moses at the burning bush, and then repeated more than 4,000 times in the Old Testament. This Lord is the existing one, and he is in need of no one or nothing. He needs no one, and he is need in, in need of anything. The Lord is timeless. As one author wrote this about his timelessness, Timelessness means that God is always the same in these eternal traits or attributes. He was like this yesterday. He will be like this tomorrow. He will be unchanged and unchangeable forever. He is the great I am, and Jesus is known as the great I am. You see, church, it's so important, as you know, that we must see Christ here in this passage, that we believe in the preeminence of Christ that Christ existed before he was even born. Christ cannot be created. He existed even before he was born, the preeminence of Christ, the doctrine known as the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is also a shepherd, a good shepherd, and a good shepherd will smell like his sheep. A good pastor or under-shepherd will also smell like his sheep or his congregation. Christ's relationship to his people is often is represented by the figure of a shepherd shepherding a flock of sheep. Jesus said in John 10:14, "I am the good shepherd and I I know my own and my own know me." I truly believe that the only way a church can be biblical and healthy, both biblical and healthy, is if the pastors truly know every member of the church by name and that every member of the church truly know their pastors, their under-shepherds. It cannot be a healthy, biblical church if it's too large for that to be possible. The benediction in Hebrews 13.20 says this, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 2.25 says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I know me as a sheep, as a sinner, have wandered off from the shepherd way too many times, but by God's grace, he restores me and forgives me as you as well. First Peter 5.4 says, And when the cheap shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Therefore, Christ is as much shepherd here as seen in the New Testament. Jesus, in Hebrews 13.8, says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. John Calvin said this, But it must be noted that God is shepherd only of those who are conscious of their own needs and weaknesses and who feel the necessity of his guidance. For it is they who willingly remain in his flock and submit themselves to his leading. David, who excelled in power and possessions, acknowledged freely that he was a sheep, the king of Israel, so that he might have God for his shepherd. What then would become of us, whose floundering proves our wretchedness, if we did not remain under the guidance of this same shepherd? Moreover, we must not forget that our greatest happiness is to have God's guiding hand stretched out to us and to live under its shadow so that his providence may watch over our safety. Close quote. Moving on in verse 1b, it says, I shall not want. God's people, God's Christians shall lack nothing, but a sheep without a shepherd lacks everything. 
Next, moving on is, I shall not lack rest, verse 2. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. These green pastures are pastures of tender grass. They are more than in respect to food, but as places of cool and refreshing rest. A place where we can get cool, especially on a hot day like this. You can imagine a beautiful shady piece of grass to lie in and rest and take a nap. The sheep love that, and so do we. This is because he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. Before becoming a pastor, Philip Keller, a man by the name of Philip Keller, was a sheep herder for eight years. He authored the book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He writes that sheep do not lie down easily. He said this in his book, In fact, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are made. Owning to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of the social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. If tormented by flies or parasites or sheep, they will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can a sheep relax. Lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. Close quote. I can imagine how difficult it would be to herd a flock of sheep and keep them healthy and protect them and love them and, and, and guide them. To be content, sheep must be free from fear, friction, famine, and flies. And so similarly, Christians must rest rest and trust in Christ, our good shepherd, to keep us from foes and protect us from famine. Are we resting in Christ? Do we have the faith to know that Jesus Christ is our perfect provider no matter what, especially with all the chaos going in this world? Many do not sleep well because they do not have this, this peace in Christ. And they don't trust him as they should. That's truly, really, really a reason why many people lack sleep. And there's an old saying, just count the sheep and it'll put you to sleep. Well, it's also a better saying. It's more biblical. It says, talk to the shepherd, pray and pray yourself to sleep. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to all, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Before his crucifixion, he told his disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. In verse 2b, he says, He leadeth me beside still waters. A sheep herder will come across three types of waters. The first are boisterous streams, rough, dangerous waters. They will... Uh, The second one is stagnant, offensive pools where bugs and mosquitoes and larvae and, 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 and bacteria can grow. And the third are these still waters. These still waters here in this verse literally means waters of stillness, good quality, healthy drinking water that you can lavish upon while you're lying down by the green pastures. He leadeth me beside the waters of stillness. These still waters provide a healthy, refreshing resource for the sheep. Next, this is what our Lord does for us, folks. Isn't this amazing? And, of course, here on our natural life, we have all these wonderful things that he's given us. But for an eternity, studying what heaven will look like for what he allows us to know what it will look like in the book of Revelation is absolutely amazing that we will be there in his majesty in his creation, in a new heaven. Next is, I shall not lack life. He said in verse 3, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In verse 3a, He restoreth my soul. To restore or convert the soul is to revive, quicken, or relieve it. To relieve the soul. Many scholars of the 16th century, as I was studying the old, the old dead men, many of them translated this, uh, restore, he restoreth my soul as the following. 
He hath converted my soul. He shall convert my soul. He shall refresh my soul. He refresheth my soul. He maketh my soul quiet. He returneth my soul. He quickeneth my soul. He bringeth back my soul. He reneweth my strength. He revives my soul. And my soul he shall restore. One scholar said this, In Hebrew idiom, the word restores my soul can mean brings me to repentance or conversion. But since the translation of the word soul is actually life, and since the metaphor here is that of shepherding, and that word probably means the Lord restores me physically to physical health or restores me to salvation, close quote. In 1991, the Lord converted my heart. He quickened my heart. He saved a wretch like me. Several of us here have our own bad heart stories. Brother Robin calls it the cardiac club. I hope the rest of you that don't belong to it don't someday join it, but you might, God willing. But there's only one who can restore or convert our hearts or our souls, spiritually speaking, and that is the Lord, our great physician, our good shepherd. Jesus Christ. Because God chooses his elect, Christ redeems us from his sins, he then justifies us before the Father, and then the Holy Spirit quickens, converts, and regenerates that heart. And we have a new heart, a saved soul. Philip Keller, the former sheep herder, explains this. He explained that there's a, a term called casting a sheep. To cast down or to cast a sheep. Very complex here. I, I actually never knew this until I read this, what he said about sheep. You've, I'm sure you've read a lot of stories about sheep, but this actually kind of reminds me of me trying, trying, trying to take a nap. Um, and here is what he said, and I quote, this is, what, this is what he experienced, a professional, what he experienced with his sheep. A heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this also makes things even worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is quite impossible for it to regain its feet. Sounds like a turtle. In this position, gases build up in the body, cutting off circulation to the legs. And often, it is only a matter of few hours before the sheep dies. The only one who can restore the sheep to health is the shepherd. Close quote. David was a shepherd. David wrote this psalm. This is a picture of God, Christ, of what the Lord does for his sheep. How he protects us how he nurtures us, how he chastens us, how he loves us, how he saves us. Keller goes on to say this, Sometimes we are like this cast sheep. We are spiritually on our backs, quite helpless. But Jesus comes to us when we are in this condition, as he did to Peter after Peter had denied him, even with oaths of cursing, and he restores us. Jesus restored Peter. He gets us up on our feet and going again. It says in Psalm 19:77, "The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple." End of quote. Lamentations 1:11 says, "All her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables and food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned." Lamentations 1:19. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. As we already know in this church, though our salvation is 100% monergistic, but we must tend to the care of our souls daily. Christians, that is so important that we tend to the souls, uh, the care and the condition of our souls daily. And how do we accomplish this? Well, here's a start. 
through the study of God's Word, not just reading God's Word, by laboring and studying God's Word daily through prayer, biblical discipleship, biblical fellowship. We must chew on and digest God's Word. Chew on it and digest it just like the sheep chew and digest the pastures that they're grazing upon. Every time I've ever talked to a Christian that lacked faith or that walked in sin more than he was repenting, I've always asked them, and the answer was always the same. Their prayer life is bad, and they're not reading God's Word. They're not studying God's Word. That's always the number one problem that I see. And it's the number one problem in this sinner's life when I'm not walking as I should, that I'm not in God's Word as I should. Next is, I shall not lack guidance. In verse 3b, he said, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sheep are probably the most stupid animals. We've all heard that. That's why they need a shepherd. That's why they need to be continually, constantly led and fed. They'll die without a shepherd. They will often wander off, and the shepherd has to bring them back to the fold, oftentimes putting the other sheep in danger while they're chasing the other sheep. A shepherd has to continually guide or redirect them from field to field while keeping them near an abundant supply of water and food. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, and we, I taught this psalm about a year ago here, we all, like, or this uh, Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned away his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sheep must be led through the paths of safety. There's going to be dangers. Sometimes the sheep have to cross some dangers to get to safety, but the shepherd's job is to protect them from those threats. David here also speaks of the paths of righteousness. The Bible says that there is no one righteous, no, not even one, and that he requires a standard of perfection, righteousness, and holiness for us to enter heaven. Imagine that. God requires perfection, holiness, and righteousness for us to be admitted into heaven. The problem is none of us are holy, none of us are perfect, and none of us are righteous. How do we accomplish this? Again, through Christ, the good shepherd. We get his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. As he stands before the Father and says, let them in because of me, because of everything that Christ did upon that cross. So this righteousness can only come from Christ, the good shepherd that David, the psalmist, is speaking of. But we as a converted people, we are imputed with his righteousness, and we are led through his paths of righteousness throughout our Christian walk as directed by God. And why do we do this? It says right here, because it is pleasing to him. We don't do it for ourselves. We do it because it is pleasing to for him. We do it for the glory of God. Did you know the Bible says that our sole number one purpose is to give God glory and to praise him? That's our purpose-driven life, to give God glory and to glorify him throughout our entire lives. It says in verse 3b, we do this for his name's sake as we're perfected by him because it is by him and for him. Next is, I shall not lack safety. Oh, there's so much more we can do with this psalm, but there's really no need to spend too much time on these six verses. Verse 4 says this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This verse is often used, this verse is often used to comfort those who are sick and dying, it is not wrong to do so if they're saved, because we never want to make an unsaved soul comfortable on their way to hell. That would be unbiblical. But God is certainly the source of comfort in a Christian's dying moment, or even in a Christian's lonely moment. The good shepherd is their source of comfort. For sheep, the valleys uh, are, are places of rich pasture and much water, but they are also places of great danger that they must prevail through. 
where hunters, poachers, poisonous reptiles, or wild animals lurk in the canyon walls. Sudden storms or flash floods may rush through the valley floors, taking the sheep with them. This is not stories. This is fact. This is what happens. Many a sheep have died because of these valleys. My wife and I enjoy off-road excursions through desert slot canyons in the Mojave Desert, Death Valley, as well as way out in the lower part of the low desert. There's much beauty and wildlife in these deserts, but there's also many dangers lurking in the darkness of these, of these canyons, such as ravines, cliffs, avalanches, poisonous snakes and reptiles, and, and, and deadly beasts of prey. But my dear friends, God did not call Christians to be couch potatoes, nor to be like the church of Laodicea, which is lukewarm, nor to be like the church of Sardis, which is dead. Sometimes God intentionally decrees us to be placed in dangerous places where we will be salt and light on, upon a hill in a dark and dying world, such as a time like this. Today, more and more professing Christians prefer the easy way out or the peaceful way out or the comfortable way out or the new trend that I just learned about by listening to a, a video by Dr. James White. They want a safe space. Imagine that, a safe space. A Christianity today that wants their safe space. Recently, James White was talking about this safe space phenomena, and he said this. Actually, on Twitter, I actually told him I was going to quote him in today's sermon, but I'm just a little guy. I don't think he's going to be listening to Bill Ress's sermon. He said this, we don't, have, we don't have to do this secular safe space stuff. There is no safe space for the spirit-indwelled person, okay? No safe space. The spirit does not drive us to safe places. The Spirit drives us out into service and risk in the name of Christ, end of quote. My dear friends, that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to go out into the world and be salt of the earth and light of the world. Fact is, during this COVID phenomena, it seems that a majority of professing Christians are not trusting in the Lord through, the va through their own valleys of the shadow of death as seen in this passage. Christ died for the universal church. So what shall our response to him in return? There's a lot of talk today about what organizations are essential or not. We all know about that. You've watched the news. Most of them said churches weren't essential. But the Lord's church is essential. Christ died for her. That is why this church has never, ever missed one Lord's Day worship service throughout this entire COVID pandemic since we knew about it in January. We're definitely a nominally in the state of California, and I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very thankful for those of you that attend, our, that are attending our services in spite of what the government says or the news says. And today we're outdoors only because our landlord placed us out here. But we love our landlord, and we submit to their authority as our landlord. But we're not out here because the government says we out, we're out here, because that's an unlawful request. We're out here because our landlord asked us to be. Don't mean to get off my notes here, but we did talk to one of their leaders today of the church that we do lease space from, and they did say earlier today that they are prayerfully considering of moving, uh, of moving them into their church services inside as well as us. But they did say that, that uh, they are very thankful that we were being patient and considerate of their request for us to be outside. So it's only a matter of time that we'll be back in there. But the church, Ecclesia, is not our building nor the parking lot. We all know that. But we got to quit looking at the building like the church. Those are luxuries that the church, that the sheep benefits from. The essential church is a living organism comprised of blood-bought born-again believers who gather and assemble at a specific location, such as homes or any public place. Y'all right here, sitting in these maroon chairs, you be the church. That's what's important, more important than the building or the luxuries. As one commentator said this, it is important to note that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lie beside quiet waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil, nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also. 
It is in the valleys with the, with the trials and dangers that we develop character. Isn't that amazing? Do you want more character? And pray for more trials. It says in Romans 5, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So we shouldn't try to prevent valleys and trials in our life. We shouldn't try to prevent persecution from coming our way, as it looks like it is a mild form of persecution coming the way to many churches today in America. We should embrace them with gratitude, thanks, and joy. It says in James 1, 2-6, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect worth, work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Recently, during an Antifa protest, as you're all aware of, uh, the riots, the, the nation is upside down, lawlessness. I saw on Facebook, Pastor Steve from the Ontario Church said, because they hate God. Somebody said, why do they do this? And Pastor Steve said, because they hate God. There's no better answer than that. The lawlessness that Romans 1 talks about. But I saw a Christian, a herald, an open-air preacher, infiltrate this rally of Antifa BLM protesters. And he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through this large apparatus, a giant megaphone, calling all men everywhere to repentance. Antifa grabbed him. They assaulted him. They strangled him, but the Christian did not flinch in the face of adversity. But sadly, many armchair quarterbacks professing alleged Christians on social media actually criticized him, saying, you're casting your pearls before your sw the swine. What's wrong with you? My dear church, we cannot know who the swine is and who the swine is not unless we at first try. We will not know who the swine is unless we try. And the truth is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and there's a good chance that some of God's elect might be Antifa. Think about that. God can save a serial killer. He can save a member of Antifa. He can save any wretch like me. He can save anybody else. So if we're in God's will, God will protect you. He will protect you no matter what. And emphasis added, if you're in God's will, he will protect you no matter what. If it's God's will for you to die, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. But if it's God's will for you to live through something, you will survive and you will be here for his glory. To give him thanks, to give him praise, and to give him, give him glory and to share his gospel until we go. A Christian's confidence must be in him, that he is sovereign over all matters. But the world and the church shouts, Black lives matter, blue lives matter, babies' lives matter, all lives matter. But I submit to you that God's sovereignty matters, and Christ's life matters the most lest we commit idolatry with all of this other lives matter stuff. A Christian's boldness and courage is to be in him, through him, and for him, for his glory. And of course, so that the lost may be found if we're sharing the gospel. John Calvin said this, and now that God reveals himself to us in the person of his only begotten Son, 
as our shepherd, more brightly than he did of old to the fathers under the law. We do not honor his protection properly unless we keep our eyes fixed upon it and for doing so trample upon all of our trepidations. Verse 4, B. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. After studying the trends of the church, that's my primary passion. I don't, I don't do sports anymore. I only watch news just to know what's going on in the world, because I think it's important that we do know what's going on in the world. But I don't let it brainwash me. But I love studying the trends of the church. And I believe a majority of the professing Christians today do not apply nor demonstrate this verse. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. But instead of fearing no evil, they are running on fears. Let this not be any of us. Let this not be me. Let this not be you. They play on fears. They play on, uh, on worry. They're full of anxiety. They do not give thanks to God for troubles, nor do they rejoice in their troubles, nor do they act like thou art with me. W.S. Plummer, another old man, said, Our shepherd walked through this valley in the days of his flesh. He entered the grave itself. He knows how necessary to our support is the divine presence in our own trials and in our own dying agonies. If his people look up to, to say to him, Thou art with me, they cannot yield to fear. If we truly are saying, but not just saying, but knowing that thou art with me, we cannot yield to fear. Verse 4 says, verse 4c says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff are symbols of a shepherd's office. By them he guides his sheep. This rod here is the Hebrew word shabet, which means a scion, or literally a stick for punishing, fighting, ruling, or walking. Some shepherds have been known to break the legs of a stubborn sheep just to keep that sheep from killing itself, or jumping off of a cliff, or running away, placing the rest in danger. God, our good shepherd, chastens those whom he loves by using this shebet upon them, and sometimes he uses the rod. This staff, Mishanah, I don't know how to pronounce that Hebrew word. It's one of those things that sound like you're actually um, spitting or when you're talking, but uh, Mishanah, something like that, is more of a guide or a walking stick. So who would you, what would you rather God use on you, the Shabbat or the Mishanah? The Shabbat that breaks, that hurts, that chastens, can make you cry because God's chasing you, or the Mishanach, the one that's more of a guide, a walking stick to help you. I prefer the latter. And the truth is, if we don't humble ourselves, I know this from experience, and I'm convinced that the reason why this heart stopped three years ago is because of pride. I'm convinced of that now. It took a long time for me to get there to realize, why would God do that? Well, this was the Shabbat to, to put me in a cardiac arrest. Three times in one day, three times a charm. I had a friend tell me, what a great, you don't need friends like, you don't need enemies when you've got friends like this, but my dear friend, I love him. He'll always tell you the truth. His name's Paul Dillon. And Paul said, well, Bill, three times in one day, it looks like you got one for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. I go, well, thanks, Paul. I really needed that. But you know what? God will humble us if we do not humble ourselves before him. And he'll use the Shabbat on us. Hopefully it would only have to be the Mishnah. Next is, I shall not lack provision. Verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. In verse 5a, he said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. A good shepherd will prepare the fields before the sheep even arrive, removing physical hazards, obstacles, destroying poisonous plants, and driving predators away. Over the years, our church, our church, 
at the other building has been visited by predators or wolves, and we drove them out of there swiftly. The fornicators, I'm only speaking of this because they were public sins created in front of everybody. The fornicators who boasted in their sin and even told one told our children, your Jesus is not Lord. That's spiritually molesting our children. And they were driven out of here. I know Aaron was next to me when I did it. A lot of people didn't understand why I was so impatient with them. And I even told one of them, if you don't get out of here, I'll tie a millstone around your neck and throw you in Lake Gregory. You tell our children that, we're not going to shed grace. We want to be graceful, but not greasy gracers with a sloppy agape. And we never saw them again, which is fine. And another man on a Thursday night entered our sanctuary during prayer night, staring at one of the girls with a lewd look on his face and even made a lewd remark. And he was escorted out swiftly. No tolerance for that. I remember preaching on, a, on an evening Bible, weekly Bible study I taught at a previous church. The pastor there was up in his age, now in his 70s. And to be honest with you, I feel bad. We loved him so much, but he was turning into a greasy greaser. His love was becoming a sloppy agape, where he was tolerating anything to happen in the church just because he wants to love everybody, wants everybody to get along. And he loved the drunks. Come on in, come on in. Well, we want the drunks to come and get saved too. But I didn't, well, I didn't want them. They're drunk. So when they came in on the night that I was preaching a weekly Bible study, I was preaching through the book of Revelation, a two-and-a-half-year study, and this guy in the back, very last pew, his name was Dave, he started mouthing off real loud. Now, we're not talking about under the influence. We're talking about inebriated with alcohol. And I stopped my preaching and says, Dave, please stop. Don't do that in this church sanctuary and he threw the four-lettered F word at me. I forgot I was a Christian, and I became a police officer again, and left the pulpit, went back, Lori was there, grabbed the guy, told him to leave, and he fought back, and I put him in a pain compliance, and he screamed, and he's yelling, and I'm walking him out the doors of the church. A guy named Michael A. Baker and his little son, Mikey, later wrote an article about it. Thankfully, it was in favor of me, because they never saw that done in church before. The wolves have to be drawn out of the church. If they're not going to change and submit to Christ and his word, and if they're going to bring sin into our church like that, they shouldn't visit very long. You see, that's the rule of a duties. When you look at the shepherd here, you also see the rule, the rule roles and duties of an under-shepherd, which is a pastor or, a, or an elder. They're called the under-shepherd. They protect their sheep. They love their sheep. They feed their sheep. They lead their sheep. They're not going to let another person come in and let their cancerous sin grow. And the, a little leaven lumps the whole lump. They're not going to allow that leaven to come into the congregation and infect the whole lump, the whole loaf, the whole body of Christ. They must be removed prayerfully and hopefully so that they be restored to the Lord. That is what the Lord, our good shepherd here, will do to protect his sheep. And I'm going to talk about sheepdogs. This is something that's really not a word in Psalm. I'm, I'm not adding to the text, but I think it's important because when you talk about the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep, you know that there's wolves. Well, there's also something that's called a sheepdog. I'm a firm believer that every local church needs a sheepdog. A sheepdog protects the sheep from the wolves. Just like that pastor at that other church. He didn't, have a, he didn't have an ounce of sheepdog in him. He was too nice. Though I don't endorse this man's doctrine, he's an Arminian, but he's a, I've sat under formal training under him as a police officer, and my wife and I have actually gone to conferences and sat under his teachings later after law enforcement. But Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, he coined the word killology, which is the psychological study of killing. And he said this in an article that I have on my website. He's an expert when it comes to wolves, sheep, and sheepdog. Quote, there is no safety in denial. Then there are sheepdogs, he went on to say, 
and I am a sheepdog. I live to protect the flock and confront the wolf. If you have no capacity for violence, then you are a healthy, productive citizen, a sheep. If you have a capacity for violence and no empathy for your fellow citizens, then you have defined an aggressive psychopath, a wolf. But what if you have a capacity for violence and a deep love for your fellow citizens? What do you have then? A sheepdog, a warrior, someone who is walking the hero's path, someone who can walk into the heart of darkness, into the universal human phobia, and walk out unscathed. That's what every church needs, a sheepdog. He went on to say this, though he's talking about general society here, but he also trains large churches on how to train up sheepdog in their churches. He went on to say this, The sheep generally do not like the sheepdog. He looks a lot like, I can relate to this, folks. Many, many churches I've been to where pastors did not like me. The sheep generally did not like the sheepdog. He looks a lot like the wolf. He has fangs and the capacity for violence. The difference, though, is that the, shep, the sheepdog must not, cannot, and will not ever harm the sheep. Any sheepdog who intentionally harms the lowliest little lamb will be punished and removed. The world cannot work any other way, at least not in a representative democracy or a republic such as ours. Close quote. Now we're going to be talking more about King David rather than Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Moving back to verse, moving forward to verse 5b, David said, Thou anointest my head with oil. Considering context and geography here, context is always important, and I happen to think that geography is not always important. I studied geography, and I, I really it didn't. I love the context of the scriptures, but geography is very important here. We have to understand the weather, the heat. The weather in the Middle East oftentimes is unbearable. You know, who knows? Today it's probably 130 degrees and very dry. And here in Southern California, I know it's in the 90s, but we have it made in the shade. But one scholar said this about this oil because the context and the geography, this was where it was written in the Middle East where it was always very hot, almost always. And he said, and I quote, the scholar said, In Palestine, where the sun shines fiercely most of the year and the temperatures continually soar up into the hundreds, the skin becomes cracked and broken and throats become parched. Oil soothes the skin, particularly the face. My, my wife's one of those girls that put oil on their face. <laughs> Makes her comfortable. It's like, a, it's like a bath to her. This oil also speaks of joy. It speaks of prosperity, and it speaks of hospitality. To go into a home, though they didn't have homes like us then, to give them oil, which was expensive, was a great gift of hospitality. T.C. Barth said this of the oil. In the East, no entertainment could be without this, and it served, as elsewhere a bath does, for bodily refreshment. Here, however, it is naturally to be understood of the spiritual oil of gladness. It had a spiritual significance to it. And that's why when before the, some of the gifts, some of the, the signs and wonders gifts ceased to exist, oil was an important part of anointing people uh, that were sick with oil because oil then was significant, a significant part of the spirituality of the healing process. Verse 5c says, my cup runneth over. Our cups runneth over, don't they? Amen? God prepares and fills the cup, which represents abundance for his people, for his sheeple, for his church. Though the Lord our God does have a rod and a staff that he warned us about, and sometimes he shows to us, and sometimes he's probably had to use on me more than you, he also has an abundance, an overabundance of love for his sheep as he provides for his people. Our good shepherd rolls over us and he feeds us. And now in the last verse, we will see a major spiritual blessing. Next is, I shall not lack a heavenly home. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus said in John 14, you've heard this at many funerals, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Church, believing in God's word, believing in this psalm, and even understanding it is not enough. We must demonstrate it by faith. We must apply it by faith. We must continually repent towards God while trusting in Christ and not living in fear. The Bible says in Proverbs, fear of the man is the snare of the devil. You want to have your joy robbed? Fear something other than God, and your joy will be robbed. It's a snare of the devil, though we all have fears in our life. John Calvin said this of this text, application and demonstration. John Calvin It is of little use to talk of the stability of God's purpose if we do not relate it to ourselves. Therefore, the prophet declares that those whom God takes under his guardianship and blessed because God's purpose is not hidden from them, for it is seen in action in the safety of the church. And so we understand that it is not those who consider God's power coldly and with indifference, but those who apply it to their own immediate need and have a right knowledge of God as the pilot of the world. It only works if we apply it to our needs, our immediate needs, and have a right knowledge of God as the pilot of this world. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this psalm. We thank you for the other 149 psalms. We thank you for all 66 books of the Bible. We know that it is without error, inerrant, sufficient, and infallible. We thank you so much, Lord. We pray uh, that now as we partake in the communion, as well as various other means of grace here within this church, that we will continually worship you and exalt Christ while doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.